Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today, as promised, we're going to dig deeper into what exactly Platonism is. And uh, throughout the rest of the podcast in the series, Platonism is really the foundation of Western thought. Um, and so it's really important to have a good grasp of what exactly Plato meant. And I've... Um, in the one I just recorded, you know, kind of gave an overview, talked about the cave, talked about the forms. Um, but that gives a little bit of an unclear idea of what exactly uh, Platonism is. So in this podcast, we're going to have an unashamedly brainy, geeky look at exactly what these forms are. Um, I said that this, you know, you can skip over this, just go right to the next one if you just gonna want to get the flow. Um, and I said this is going to be maybe too difficult for some people to understand. I might back off from that a little bit to say, um, if you put the time in, it's not hard to understand Platonism. It's a lot harder to understand Aristotle. But Platonism has a certain logic to it. Uh, and so there's 10 points of clarification here. And then we'll look at three critiques of Platonism uh, that Plato himself raises against his ideas. Um, and uh, you might not grasp every single one of these clarifications and the critiques. But I think throughout the, the course of this podcast, you'll get a good grasp of what Plato actually taught. So first of all, causality. Things that are F, other than F, are so by partaking of F. Things that are F, other than F, are so by partaking of F. So take, for example, yellowness, a yellow flower. Um, a flower is yellow by partaking of the idea, the form, a yellowness. Now, we're going to have an easier time understanding Plato if we understand it through the lens of Plotinus, uh, of Neoplatonism, because Plato didn't really explain where these forms are. Uh, he didn't explain whether these forms actually exist. There's actually a division in philosophy between uh, realism and and anti-realism, realists believe that um, the forms of Plato actually exist somewhere. Uh, and anti-realists anti think they don't actually literally exist. Uh, they might just be concepts that, that exist. Um, or perhaps they don't exist at all and there's only words. Uh, those are That would be a nominalist that only believes that words ex exist but they don't relate to anything. Um, in an absolute sense. Anyways, I don't mean to get distracted by that. Um, what I want to say is that uh, Plotinus and then Augustine, interpreting Plotinus, saw the forms of Plato in the mind of God. Uh, and that gives us a hook to hang, hang things on. We need to make a distinction to say, this isn't Plato. We are wanting to try and understand Plato. Um, but when we understand him through Plotinus, it makes more sense. Because um, when I make a painting, and I decide I'm going to make a yellow dandelion in the painting. That's because in my mind, I have a concept of yellowness. I have a form of yellowness. And this flower on the paper is yellow to me because it partakes of the form of yellowness in my mind. So uh, Plotinus would have seen these forms are in the mind of God, and that's how he makes the world with form. So the principle of causality is that things that are F, F representing a form, representing yellowness, representing goodness, representing 
uh, roundness. Things that are F, other than F, are so by partaking of F. So yellow flower is yellow because it partakes of yellowness. Second principle, separation. The F is itself by itself, thus not identical to the things that partake of it. The F is, or the F just represents whichever form we're talking about, okay? I hope that's clear enough. Um, the F, what that would represent one specific form, whether it's yellowness or roundness or goodness, whatever. Uh, separation is the one we're talking about. So the F is itself by itself, that not, thus not identical to the things that partake of it. So yellowness, um, again, a dandelion partakes in yellowness. But yellowness is not, um, is separate from the dandelion. This, we're not talking about the form of a dandelion, which would be a different category. We're talking about the form of yellow, the idea, the concept of yellow. Uh, and that's going to be different and stand apart from all of its, um, all of the ways that, that yellowness gets applied in the world. So it's separate, and that's important that the forms are separate from the world itself. Impurity is point number three. Sensible things, those are the things in the world around us that we can observe with our senses. Sensible things are often impure in that they can and often do partake of contrary properties. Um, so a dandelion is impure in the sense that it has yellowness, it has greenness, um, it has the form of being alive, it has the form of um, roundness, um, and it has all these properties jumbled all together, and that's what makes something, you know, this is how we see things in the world, they're different forms jumbled together. Uh, and this makes them impure in a platonic sense. Point number four, purity. Forms themselves cannot have contrary properties. The form of yellow, when we're just talking about the idea of yellow, there isn't greenness in yellow. There isn't uh, livingness in yellow. There isn't roundness in yellow. The only thing we mean by yellow is yellow. Okay, so that's the idea of purity, that these forms have um, purity in themselves. And when we're speaking about a form, we're only speaking about one form at a time. Point five, one over many. For any plurality of F things, there is a form of Fness by which these partake of F. So for any plurality of yellow things, there's a form of yellowness by which all these yellow things partake of yellowness. Uh, so this is kind of re repeating the same thing uh, as causality, but it's just saying there's just one form that all these things partake in. Point six, uniqueness. For any property F, there's exactly one form of Fness. So for every property, or, or for every, yeah, for every property F, for example, yellow, there's exactly one form of yellowness. There aren't lots of different forms of yellowness. Unless we're talking shades of yellow, and that's fine. You can have different forms of different shades of yellow. Um, but likely that would be actually, there's probably just one form of yellow, and then there might be a different form of blue. And when you put these two forms together, they become impure by, the common, by combining the two. And then that combination becomes a sub, not a form, but an um, part of the sensible world. So likely, and that's actually a good illustration of how 
like. There might just be the, you know, the four primary colors are the forms. And by mixing those th things together in the sensible world, we get all the variations of colors that we have. But uh, in Plato's thinking, um, I'm pretty sure the primary colors weren't part of his, his way of seeing things, but this is a good example of how Platonism works. There would be a few forms that help to explain the order and diversity in the world. When you combine these forms, um, they can have you know many different iterations. But again, there's one over many. These trace back to just, you know, all these colors trace back to one form of the yellow, one form of the blue, one form of a circle, one form of goodness, etc. Um, do we just do uniqueness? I think so. Um, point seven, self-predication. For any property f, the f is f. Um, this is more simple than it sounds. Um, how do you describe yellow? Yellow is yellow. There isn't another way to describe it. The f or the the form describes itself. It is its own death, uh, explanation. It refers back to itself. Um, a good way of of thinking about this is God explaining himself to Moses. Moses says, who are you? Uh, and Moses coming from Egypt would be familiar with the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the God of the crocodiles, the God of the frogs. What is it that you are, what, what is it that refers back to you, God? And God responds, I am that I am. I define myself, is what he was saying in effect. I am or I am that I am. In Hebrew, that would be Yahweh. Um, so this is this is how these forms work for um, Plato. That's not to imbue them with the divine characteristics. Uh, don't get confused by that. Maybe that was a confusing illustration. But the idea is that they, they refer to themselves. Yellowness doesn't refer to something higher than it. It refers to itself. It is its own definition. Yellowness, what is yellowness? It is yellowness. Unless it participates in the form of color and then it might be part of a higher form, in which case yellowness itself is not a form, it's part of the sensible world. Um, so there would be those, those questions of within Platonism, what is actually a form, and what is part of the sensible world. But self-predication, forms explain themselves, they're not explained by other things. Oneness, each form is one. Uh, there, there isn't a mul multiplicity within the form of yellow. There's one form of yellow, it is unique. And it is one. No causation by contraries. For any property F, nothing that is, I, that is F could make something possess a property that is contrary to the property of being F. So um, let's reread this with our illustration of yellow. For any property yellow, nothing that is yellow could make something possess a property that is contrary to the property of being yellow. So a flower might be yellow and then become brown. Um, but this isn't because of the form of yellowness. The form of the yellowness is responsible for it uh, being yellow. Um, but the form of the yellowness doesn't cause it to be a different color. It causes it to be yellow. And it would be a different form that would cause it to be brown or something like that. Now, actually, this is um, a good point of illustration here. Um, is we need to ask the question, do... Um, the forms have a causal relation or an explanatory relation to the world. 
Um, do the forms cause the world in the sense that um, there's the form of the yellow up there and it's shooting down yellowness on this flower? So it's, it's somehow an active agent on the yellow. Um, there might be some people that would see that, but likely not because forms themselves don't move. They don't do anything. Uh, they're like numbers. In fact, numbers are function very similar to forms in that you discover numbers, um, but you don't make them up. They exist. It's something that exists out there. The number one, two, three, four, five... You know, we could make different symbols to represent them. Um, we could, you know, change our numbering system so that, um, you know, it's a numbering system based on, on 12 or based on 7s. But the idea of numbers exists, whether we like it or not. Um, and we can describe the world around us. There's three chairs in front of me. I can describe the world by numbers. And the world is organized in that sense by numbers. Um, but the numbers don't cause anything to happen. There, there's no causal relationship between numbers and the actual world. Likewise, there isn't a causal relationship between the forms and the world around us. Which is why uh, I talked about Plato needed to come up with um, the demiurge, a free agent that is the causal um, principle bringing things into existence because the forms themselves don't move, they don't think, they don't do anything. They're like numbers, they're like, you know, principles. Um, and so, um, well, I'm needing to... The word cause is a little bit of a, a tricky word. When we get into Augustine, we'll get into more precise terminology of cause. And there's material cause, formal cause, um, efficient cause, and final causation in Aristotle. And that will clean up a little bit the vocabulary. Um, but I hope that you understand that the, the forms themselves aren't reaching out and changing the world. They are there, and they give order to the world. Um, but they, they need a causal agent. They need something that's able to move and uh, in time and to make things happen. Uh, presumably by free will, because that's, I don't know what other vehicle you could you could come up with, or else just through randomness and through matter individuating things. Okay, the final principle here is non-identity. No form is identical to what partakes of it. No form is identical to what partakes of it. So the flower, the, the dandelion, partakes of yellowness. But it's not perfect yellowness in itself. If you examine it really closely, you'll say, well, it's a little bit of an off yellow. It's a dandelion yellow. Um, but it's not the perfect form of yellowness. Likewise, um, there's circles all around us. There's squares all around us. But if you examine them, it's not a perfect circle. And even if you could imagine in your mind a perfect circle, um, that doesn't encapsulate the whole form of circleness. Uh, or of, of yellowness or of goodness. The form is always more um, than what it can be represented by. No form is identical to what partakes of it. So there is a concept or, or a form or an idea that um, all these things that partake of it are representations of it, but the form itself is going to be different from them, it's going to be above them, and it won't be it's impossible to encapsulate it in any definition completely, although you can get very close. 
All right, so uh, as I mentioned, um, no, I haven't mentioned that. That's in the next podcast. Um, towards the end of his life, Plato wrote a book called Parmenides, and uh, we've we've briefly looked at Parmenides. He's probably the the main philosopher before Plato, um, and um, he imagines a discussion between Socrates and Parmenides, which likely didn't happen, but he's kind of resurrecting these two people from the dead. To, and Socrates is representing Plato's thought, and Parmenides is representing his own thoughts. And Parmenides brings a bunch of challenges against uh, Socrates and Plato. Um, Plato's thoughts as represented through Socrates. And uh, this, is, this is very common in Plato's writings, uh, to have these fictional conversations. Um, and sometimes they're, they're interesting and, and kind of fun to read because... Um, He's he's got kind of a creative flair, you know. And then this person came in, and and then um, you know Socrates rubbed his leg and said, "Oh, isn't it interesting about um, pain?" And and there's all these little anecdotes in there to kind of color it up and make it make it interesting to read. All that to say, um, Parmenides is uh, the one book where Plato seems to ask himself questions that he doesn't have all the answers to. And he does this through the mouth of Parmenides. And there's a bunch of questions that Parmenides poses, and some of them he answers uh, and satisfactory, some of them he doesn't answer completely. Um, one of the challenges is unknowability. And he says, uh, Parmenides says, if the forms are as you describe them, either the men, either men cannot know the forms, or the gods cannot know men. So there seems to be too great of a separation. Again, um, no form um, is perfectly represented in the world that we see around us. Um, no form part uh, is, there's a separation that the, that the forms are as they are in themselves. They're not identical to the things that partake of them. Uh, they are pure. Everything we see around us is impure. Um, so Parmenides said there, there's too great of a separation between the world of sensible things and the world of the forms. Either people who are all we see is the world around us um we don't have access to the world of the forms and so if we don't have access to that world what good is it to us or else which is kind of to say the same thing the gods because it's a polytheistic system before christianity um the gods being in the world of the forms <clears throat> which is not that that's a debated question where the gods are who the gods are that's a question that's kind of being worked out in the Greek mind here. Um, but the gods can't have access to man because they're in the world of the forms where everything is perfect, everything is pure. Um, and this world of sensible things where things are impure, where they mix back to, back and forth and, and they partake partially of forms, uh, seems that it would be unknowable to the gods themselves. The second objection is uh, participation or separation. So how does a yellow flower participate in the form of yellowness without dividing yellowness? Um, so there's, uh, I read an article online that was explaining this. I think it was the Journal of Online Philosophy, Online Philosophy Journal, um, explained that um, there's basically two options for how individual things can participate in a form. Either they get part of the pie or they get the whole pie. And so um, Socrates responds that um, something participates in yellowness, for example, by 
participating in the whole thing. All of the form of yellowness is there in the yellow flower, uh, although it's going to be somewhat corrupted and it's going to be mixed with other things, but you know, it partakes of the whole form of, of the yellow. And Parmenides responds, well, how can many things participate in one form? And Socrates responds, well, it's like a day. A day is one, and yet it fills, you know, all the aspects of the world with light. And Parmenides says, well, that only makes sense. Um, a day can fill, can cover a whole world in the same way that a sail can cover many people. So the sail is, it's one sail, but it's covering many people, but every person is covered by a different part of the sail. And so in that illustration, what he's saying is that one form can't, can't be represented in many different individual things without it being divided. So the form of yellowness, um, you know, is represented by many flowers, but they all have one portion, physical portion of the form, like a sail that's covering many things. And so um, it's as though Parmenides is saying forms, um, things cannot participate in the whole form. They have to part participate in just part of the form. But if they're participating in parts of the form, it's going to be possible to numerically separate. Well, this has the first part of the form. This has the second part of the form, the third part of the form. And if you can numerically divide them, then it's no longer, the form is no longer whole. It's divisible. And that means it's not a form, it's part of, you know, divisible numerical uh, reality. It's part of the sensible world. So that seems to defeat um, the theory of the forms. The third problem is probably the, the most well-known problem of Platonism, which is the third man argument. Um, so the argument goes like this. Um, you and I are men, uh, or human beings, uh, in that we partake, partake in the form of man, of, of humanness. I'm just going to stick with man uh, as a, uh, the older way of saying it, just because human is too clunky. So probably the most well-known critique of and, and problem within Platonism, and I believe this one is brought out by Aristotle as well as um, basically an unanswerable question of Platonism that leads it to um, a reduction, reductio ad absurdum, um, it pushes it to a place where it, it shows that it's absurd and therefore the whole thing can't be true, is um, the third man argument. And the third man argument goes like this. Um, you and I are men in that, in that we've, we participate in the form of manness or in humanness if we want to be politically correct. Um, so there's the form of humanness and then there's the form of... and then you, I'm a human, you're a human, we're all humans because we participate in the form of humanness or in manness. We'll just stick with that. We'll stick with the older um, way of saying it just because it's known as the third man argument and for other reasons. So there's um, all of the men in the world, all the human beings in the world, and then there's one form of the man that um, that we are human in that we participate in the form of the man. But the man himself, this form of the man, must be a man, wouldn't it? I mean, if he is the form of manness, shouldn't he also be a man? And so this form of the man 
needs to be under another form because it itself participates in the form of manness. Otherwise, we couldn't call it the form of man. And so there needs to be a third man, which is the form of man that both all the individual men and the form of the man is part of this larger group. If you're, I hope you're following me. It's a little bit hard to explain. Um, and so there's now three men. There's all the there's now three groups. There's all the individual men, and then there's the form of the man, and then above both of them, there's the form of the form of the man, which the form of the man participates in. Well, now we have three uh, groups of people, and now we need to ask: Well, this form of the form of the man also is a man. So then it needs to be something higher than, than this. And, and so we end up just continually getting another man, another man, another man, or another form, another form, another form. And you could do this with any of the forms, but uh, it's just more the example that I think Aristotle used was the form of the man and, and said there's this third man and that leads to um, an infinite regress, which is absurd. Therefore, the theory of the forms as it stands um, can't work. And so there's going to be a number of ways of resolving this and dealing with this. And these critiques, obviously, you know, are the stuff of debate. And uh, I'm not laying them out and saying, well, it's never been answered in 2,300 years. Obviously, it has. Um, but uh, these are kind of the critiques, the major critiques of Platonism. Um, <clears throat> my own personal critique is that um, Platonism really makes sense. It, it really pushed philosophy forward uh, in that it gave one central point of reference and it introduced absolute truth back into the equation. And in his discussion of being and becoming, um, there was a way of explaining the world uh, that bridged the gap between Parmenides and Heraclides. Um, and uh, really, if you want to look for what is, why in the West... You know, we discovered science, why we discovered, um, you know, made really great advances socially and, and ethically and, and created all the things that, that we love and are proud of as far as modern civilization. The roots of that are going to go back to Plato. Um, but his system wasn't complete. He kind of created a system uh, that was a really awesome start, but with a lot of loose ends. We don't know how the world came into being. There's no causal agent. The forms don't do anything. They're just there. Um, so he said, well, maybe there's this demiurge business. And we don't really know what he's talking about with that. As well, there's these critiques of his, his, um, his philosophy that he himself recognized towards the end of his life. And he didn't seem to have firm answers for all these. And so he kind of left it to his disciples to answer these. Um, and that's how Aristotle is going to pick up the baton and say, okay, I'm going to take elements of Platonism, but turn it in a completely different direction. And um, Plotinus, we'll talk about a little bit later, also takes a, the baton. He's going to be influenced both by Aristotle and by Plato. And he's going to um, introduce the idea of a divine mind. And then this is what, what Augustine is going to take up and say, yes, the forms are situated in the mind of God. So... There are certain ideas in the mind of God, and that's, that's how God is able to create a world that is orderly and structured, and that's how God is able to, to act with justice and goodness and righteousness. And um, 
by the way, I guess we'll just close with this. Um, one of the questions that um, Plato poses in one of his dialogues called Euthyphro is called the Euthyphro Dilemma, where he says, uh, well, Socrates is asking, this is in the previous podcast I had talked about somebody um, putting their father on trial over the murder of a slave. I, I couldn't remember if it was called the Fido or the Mino. It was actually neither. It was called the Euthyphro, and I should have known it was the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, and so the Euthyphro Dilemma is... Um, do the gods value justice um, because it is their will or because uh, how, uh, I'm trying to think how to phrase this correctly um, alright Google has helped me out here the Euthyphro dilemma is found in Plato's dialogues, dialogue Euthyphro in which Socrates asks Euthyphro is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious or is it pious because it is loved by the gods now, this is a dilemma, which ends up to be a false dilemma, but it seems to destroy, atheists today love this, and, and still continue to bring this up, literally the Euthyphro dilemma from Plato, to destroy the notion of God. And, and they'll, they'll use it by name all the time, the Euthyphro dilemma proves that God cannot be ethical. Because if um, the good is loved by the gods because it is good, then there is something above God. God himself is subordinate to goodness. And when atheists critique God as being, you know, the God of the Bible as being unjust or, um, you know, barbaric or unethical, what they're saying is there's something called goodness above God, and God is subordinate to that. Well, if God is subordinate to something, he's not really God anymore, is he? Or, um, so that's the first part, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Alternately, um, God could just say whatever I decide arbitrarily is the right thing. So Zeus said, I feel like, you know, raping this, this young girl. And so that was the will of Zeus. And so, if, and so for him, the will of Zeus was the good in that situation. So in that case, uh, the will of the gods becomes what is pious or what is good. But that, that seems to destroy any, nature, nature, uh, any possibility of absolute goodness because it's just the capricious will of, of God or the gods. Um, so some Christians will respond, well, whatever God did in the Old Testament was good because God is good, uh, and whatever he decides is justice. Um, and atheists will say, well, if that's the case, if it's good because God has chosen it, then all we're talking about is the will of God. All we're talking about is his decisions. Um, and that seems to destroy any, any um, uh, overarching idea of absolute goodness or absolute truth. And the way that Christians have resolved this for centuries, millennia, is to say that the nature of goodness um, is in the mind of God. That the form of the good, Plato talked about the form of the good, which is the highest form, goodness itself. This is in God. It's identical with his nature. And we can conceptualize that by thinking about it's, it's an idea within his mind. Um, so you have an idea within your mind about what is good. I have an idea in my mind what is good. We don't necessarily agree all the time, but we have some idea that's pretty similar about what is good behavior, what is bad behavior, um, and what is a good thing to do and a bad thing to do. God also has an idea in his mind. But his ideas, because of his nature as God, are unchanging, unmoving, and they're perfect. 
And so um, the, the two horns of the dilemma that either uh, the, the good is chosen by the gods because it is good, which seems to say that the gods aren't really gods because they're subordinate to the form of the good, or it's good because the gods choose it, in which case the gods seem to destroy any nature, any possibility, or God seems to destroy any possibility of absolute good. Um, the third option is that um, the good is good because it is part of God's nature. Um, and this this resolves the Euthyphro dilemma. So we're going to turn on now to uh, turn the page to Aristotle now, and um, and then we'll move on through our survey of ancient philosophy to talk about uh, Plotinus and then Augustine.